بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما بصدر الشريف اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد This is session number 77 in the series Islam's greatest personalities on part 26 of the seerah of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Today's discussion insha'Allah will be regarding the first migration to Abyssinia. We know that there were two migrations to Abyssinia before the actual migration took place to Medina Munawwara. We'll be looking at the first migration uh, today, inshallah. Now, the first thing to understand is, in the previous sessions, we've been speaking about the persecution of the Muslims, the torture, the atrocities that the Quraysh carried out firstly against Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and then against the Muslims. And we spoke about various Sahaba, the difficulties they underwent, and we named many of them and went through all of the details. Now, Islam is Allah's greatest blessing for mankind. The greatest thing that's happened for this world is Islam. So Allah's greatest favor for this universe, for the mankind of this universe, for the entire humanity is Islam, right? I, I want you to understand this. Allah's greatest blessing for this world, for the humanity, for mankind, is Islam. And therefore, for the sake of Islam, every type of struggle, every type of hardship can be endured for the sake of Islam. Islam is so great that because of it, any type of hardship, any type of struggle, any type of sacrifice can be endured. Everything can be sacrificed for the sake of Islam. As a Muslim, this is what we believe. You can sacrifice anything for the sake of Islam. However, it's inconceivable for a Muslim to sacrifice Islam for anything or anyone else. This is important to understand. Because what we're seeing now is the Sahaba or Sahaba, the Prophet wasallam, who was the greatest, the best, the most beloved of Allah. But for the sake of Islam, even he, like Allah made him go through that. Allah could have protected him. He could have had a really comfortable life, very easy life, right? Like ours. Could have been nice, you know, VIP service, wherever he went, they'd roll out the red carpet, you know, put up the chair like you've done for me here. Okay, set everything up, everyone's sitting nicely. Allah could have arranged that for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. What we're being shown here that Islam is so great as a blessing that any hardship, any trouble can be undergone because of Islam. And that's what we see in the lives of the Prophets and then the Sahaba radiallahu anhu. But it doesn't work the other way around. You can, Islam cannot be compromised for anything or anyone. Right? Last week, if you remember, we spoke about the example of a Sahabi. Um, do you remember the name? Uh, at the end, about where his mother said that she's not going to eat and she's not going to drink. Um, I, I can't recall the name of the Sahabi, anhu. And 
she was forcing him, she said, you know, to worship the idols and, um, and he, he refused. Was it Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas? Yes, Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas, radiallahu anhu, one of the Ashraim Mubashara. And that's when Allah revealed the verses of the Quran that show kindness to your parents. However, if any one of your parents force you to commit shirk, you don't follow them. Like even that, you, there's no compromise there just because your parents are telling you. And that was regarding Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas radiallahu anhu. So here, first of all, we understand that everything and anything can be sacrificed for the sake of Islam. But Islam cannot be sacrificed or compromised for anyone or anything else. And a clear example of this is the migration. Let's look at the first migration where they were willing to sacrifice Makkah, their hometown, their properties, their houses, family, wealth, everything. But they weren't willing to compromise their deen. They weren't willing to compromise their Islam. That No, that's one compromise. We'll give up all our money. We'll give up all our wealth. And that's what they did, literally. When they, when they made the migration, they didn't take anything with them. You can wait, wait, wait. First of all, they migrated secretly, as you're going to find out, right? So you can't be carrying luggage. And even if you carried it, what, how much can you carry as one person? How much can you carry with you? You go into another country altogether, right? And that's what the Sahaba did. So literally, they left everything behind. For the sake of protecting their faith, for the sake of protecting their religion, only to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, leaving behind their homes, their wealth, their towns, and they went all the way to another country, that's Abyssinia, just so that they can practice their Islam. Now, the immediate benefit of the migration was something great. What was the immediate benefit? The immediate benefit of this migration was that they had a safe refuge. No more trouble, no more persecution, no more oppression, no more being constantly attacked. And they were freely able to practice Islam without anyone saying anything to them. Like Abyssinia was, uh, which they called Habasha at that time, and it's, it's, it's known as Abyssinia. Nowadays, um, today, in today's world, it's called Ethiopia. Uh, but previously, it was known as Abyssinia, before it's called Habasha. So it was a land where Sahaba freely practiced Islam whilst they were there. And another great benefit of this early migration was they were able to share the message of Islam out of Arabia. Like, can you imagine at that time where it was impossible to practice Islam in Makkah, right? At such a time, they were actually spreading Islam, right? Even if it was just by practice and good character in another country. Right in, in Africa, it's, the spreading of Islam has already started in Africa in the early days when the Muslims are struggling in Mecca. So this was a huge benefit um, that Islam started to spread or at least people started to get to know Islam in the land of Africa in the early days of Islam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praised these Sahaba who migrated. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that those people who migrate for the sake of Allah after they have been oppressed, we're going to give them a very good treatment in this world. And the reward in the hereafter is going to be even better. 
And Hafiz ibn Kathir rahmatullahi mentions that Allah is speaking specifically about the Muslims who migrated from Makkah to Abyssinia. Now what does it mean that Allah is going to give them a good abode in the world? They're saying, well, going to Abyssinia was good because the, you know, the, it was peaceful. Nobody harassed them. And some say that no, what it means by a good abode is the eventual abode, which is going to be Medina Munawwara. Now don't worry, you're going to have your own land. Right? And that's what happened when they eventually got to Medina Munawwara. And some say that no, it refers to the pure sustenance and provisions that were able, they were able to gain uh, later on. Now there's a principle in our deen. And some say this is a hadith as well. Whoever gives up something for the sake of Allah, whoever gives up something for the sake of Allah, Allah always gives you something better in return. This is a promise. مَنْ تَرَكَ شَيْئًا لِلَّهِ if you sacrifice something, if you give up something for the sake of Allah, Allah will always give you something better in return. Some people get that exact thing back, right? And some people get something different. But this is the promise. If you, you give up something for Allah's sake, Allah will always give you something back better in return. Now, when they gave up their land in Makkah, when they gave up their houses, do you think it's getting going unwatched? No, Allah knows. And it's all being written down. And it's all being recorded. So the whilst Muslims were being persecuted in Makkatul Mukarramah. Now this is now prior to the migration. What led to the migration? Muslims are being beaten up. Muslims are being harassed. We've gone through all of the stories already. Right? And the terrible ways that they were being tortured. So whilst all that's happening, Allah is revealing certain parts of the Quran. And one of the surahs that were revealed during the persecution of Muslims in Makkah was Suratul Kahf. Suratul Kahf. Now we know Suratul Kahf. Now in this surah, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala was giving subtle indications to the Muslims through the stories. Now in Suratul Kahf, we've got various stories. What stories do we have in Suratul Kahf? Tell me, what stories? What stories do we have about the cave? So what's happening in the cave? Yeah, the six sought refuge in a cave. Why? Because of persecution. Can you see? So over here, Allah's giving examples now. He doesn't say direct like go and leave. But that was one example that look, there were certain people, right? Youth, their iman was in danger. So they chose to leave their town, they leave their city and went and hid in a cave. So that was an indication. Look how Allah preserved their iman. Look how Allah looked after them. They went to sleep for so many years. Right, 300 years plus 309 years to be specific. And then look what happened, how Allah protected them, how Allah safeguarded them and how their rank was elevated. So that was one indication. What other stories do we have in Suratul Kahf? Musa and Khidr. So through the story of Musa and Khidr, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, now what happens in the story of Musa and Khidr? Khidr alayhi salam was doing certain things, right? Musa was kind of like, what are you doing? But was it, was it what Musa thought? It wasn't. So this is a message was given to the Sahaba that don't look at the apparent. In this world, the system is the apparent. What you see isn't what you always get. Right? That's what they say to us. But what you see, that's not the result. Muslims are being persecuted. That's not the result. Just because you're being persecuted now, 
That doesn't mean that that's it. You're the losers and the mushrikeen of Makkah are the winners. And so this is the example that was given through the story of Musa alayhi salam and Khidr that external factors don't determine the results. Rather, it's sometimes totally the opposite. And look at what happened with the Muslims. Like today, the Muslims are weak, right? And then what happened? These same Muslims, the same Muslims that were being persecuted, they were being tortured, right? If anybody looked at that situation and gave up, right, we've lost it, forget it. Let's just leave this religion altogether, right? What would have happened? Instead, because they persevered, right? They saw, what did they see? Like Musa salam thought, what are you doing? That's wrong, you can't do that. And he was told, just be quiet, don't say anything. And what happened in the end, when he revealed the story, he understood, oh, it's not the external factors. I wasn't supposed to question the external factors. Sahaba being told, don't question these external factors, you just persevere. And what happened, these same Sahaba, they became leaders of the world. Like they were ruling over these same people later on. What other stories do we have in Surah Al-Kahab? Dhul-Qarnayn. So in the story of Dhul-Qarnayn, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows, land belongs to Allah. The land, the entire earth belongs to Allah. And Allah will give it to the rightful people. And the true inheritors, like Quran tells us, the true inheritors of any land are the people of Iman and Taqwa. And Allah will not allow a people to remain in a land as long as they are oppressive. They will continue, but a time will come when Allah will send someone to deal with the oppressor. And this is what we learn through Dhul Qarnayn's story. Can you see? So the Sahaba, these are the kind of verses that are being revealed. This is the surah that's being revealed. And the Sahaba being told, look, you're in a land at the moment, right? You're being beaten up left, right and center. But don't worry about it. That's not the end all. There's going to be much more that's going to happen. And the examples were given uh, through the stories of the Quran. And then another surah was revealed as well during those early days whilst Muslims were being persecuted in Makkah al-Mukarramah, uh, Surah Al-Zumar. In one particular verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قُلْ يَا عِبَادِيَ الَّذِينَ عَمَلُوا اتَّقُوا رَبَّكُمْ O my slaves, those who accepted Iman, fear your Lord. لِلَّذِينَ أَحْسَنُوا فِي هَذِهِ الدُّنْيَا حَسَنًا Those who do good in this world, Allah will grant them goodness. وَأَرَضُ اللَّهِ وَاسِعًا The earth of Allah is vast. It's not just Makkah. The earth of Allah is really vast, right? You finding it difficult now? You can go somewhere else and stay there for a bit. إِنَّمَا يُوَفَّ الصَّابِرُونَ أَجْرَهُمْ بِغَيْرِ حِسَابٍ That's where this verse comes. That Allah will re repay the patient ones without any limit. So the reward for sabr is limitless. There's no... There's no limit to the reward of patience. Now, Islam starts spreading in Makkah like wildfire. It's going crazy. Despite the persecution, Islam's spreading. And the mushrikeen are getting more and more annoyed, more and more uh, furious, and more and more enraged. Because the, the more they're persecuting people, Islam is spreading. And it's become the talk of the town. Everywhere, everyone's talking about Islam. Islam is spreading everywhere. And the mushrikeen, they think, what shall we do? They started a process of imprisonment. They thought, the only way we can stop Islam from spreading is by locking people up, restricting their movement. Because if A goes to B, right, he's going to talk to him about Islam. And then that's another person we've lost. 
So they tried to restrict people, beat people, torture people even more, much worse than they were already doing. Until the level of torture became unparalleled to anything that any, anyone ever uh, experienced in that land. The torture became so severe, so severe that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam himself, he was physically unable to prevent the Sahaba from getting tortured. He wasn't in a position to actually go and like stop the torture from happening. He himself had the assistance of Allah. He had the help of Allah. And who, what else did he have? What did the Prophet sallallahu have which the Muslims didn't have? It, protection from who? Abu Talib. Remember Abu Talib, we've spoken about him in detail. Abu Talib was, right, he'd be, he'd, if anybody came to the Prophet he'd stand in front, he'd protect him. Yes, sometimes they did get through and they did some horrible, nasty things. But overall, it was nothing in comparison to what the Sahaba were facing all the time. So the Prophet number one, has got divine protection. Number two, he's got Abu Talib in front, on the side, everywhere around him. So they were quite cautious in the way they dealt with the Prophet directly. But with the Sahaba, they didn't have, number one, the level of protection from Allah that he had. And number two, Abu Talib wasn't going around protecting all of the Muslims. He'd taken the responsibility to protect his nephew. And he was doing that. And he continued doing that till his final moment. So and the Prophet himself couldn't physically go and stop the torture from happening. You know, we, we spoke about stories last week where people were being tortured. He passed by. He gave them words of consolation. He said, be patient. Allah is going to give you Jannah. But he couldn't kind of go there and stop the torture from happening. He wasn't in a position to do that. Muslims were very weak in terms of strength at this moment in time. So the Prophet ﷺ wasn't just going to sit back and let it all happen. So on one occasion, the Prophet ﷺ you know, mentioned to the Sahaba that the only option remains now is to migrate. You need to get out of here. Because it's just, it's unbearable. So the Prophet ﷺ advised on one occasion the Sahaba, he said, fil Spread, like leave, go somewhere else. And this is in Musannaf Abdul Razak. Sahaba inquired, where shall we go? Like, if somebody tells you, go, where? Where, where is it safe to go? Like these guys can get anywhere. They didn't think we're going to go beyond the sea. That, that was probably now, it didn't even cross their mind. You know, in my thinking of going to another town or a city, but the Arabs would travel anyway. They were going all the way to Syria and back on a regular basis. So it wasn't as if, if we go to another city, they were not going to get chased. So where, O Prophet of Allah, where shall we go? And the Prophet ﷺ himself pointed towards Habasha to the Abyssinia of that time, Ethiopia of today. And he said, go over there. There's actually a hadith in Bayhaqi and Ibn Ishaq has mentioned this as well. Inna bi ardi al-habasha malikan la yuzlam ahadan indahu falhaqu bi biladihi hatta yaj'alullahu lakum kharajan wa makhrajan mimma antum fi. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, there is an emperor in Habasha, in Abyssinia, and nobody is persecuted and oppressed over there. It's, it's a very peaceful place. Nobody's rights are violated. It's, it's a very harmonious place to live. No one, like there's no crime. 
It's a place which is crime-free. Basically, this emperor, he had established such a rule in his empire um, that it was just very peaceful. There was law and order. It was very, very peaceful. Uh, so he said, Go and live over there until Allah creates a way out. Until things get better in Mecca, go and stay over there. Now the question arises here from all places, why Habasha? We always know about Abyssinia and the migration, but the question arises, why Abyssinia? What's the reason for it? So let's understand what the scholars have mentioned in regards to why Abyssinia. Number one, the first reason why the Muslims migrated to Habasha upon the instruction of the Prophet wasallam was the emperor of Habasha. His actual name is Ashama. Ashama. He was very just, very pious, and he was actually a scholar, Christian scholar. So he was an alim, Christian. Obviously, Islam hadn't reached him yet. So he was on the true religion, Christian scholar, known to be very pious, very fair, very, very fair. Um, the title of the emperors of that time uh, was Najashi. Uh, English, they say Negus and Najashi. Um, and his Arabic name was actually Atiyah. Atiyah means a gift. Uh, so his name in his own language was Ashama. So Ashama is his name. Najashi is the title. Right? Najashi is the title. Like for example, Fir'aun is the title. Pharaoh. Okay, like we say the Pharaoh. But he had his own name. So similarly, the emperor of that particular kingdom was known as Najashi. Uh, and his name was Ashama. So in his empire, nobody was oppressed. Everyone lived in harmony. No trouble. Peaceful, very peaceful place. Number two, Habasha was the old trade route for the Quraysh. Which are the current trade routes for the Quraysh? Syria and? Sham is Syria. Yemen, right? When I say current, I mean where we are now in the Syria. Not today. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah. So, like, Quraysh, Quran speaks about. The summer journey and the winter trade journey. So that was to Syria, or well, let's call it Sham, because it's not just Syria. It's a whole region. And to Yemen. The, in the olden days, before this time of the Prophet ﷺ, their ancestors, their trade route was to Habasha. Habasha. That was their trade route. Now, when you're young, right, growing up, you always hear stories from your parents, from your grandparents. So all these people now who become oldies, they used to hear from their grandparents and their parents about Habasha. And they used to hear that whenever they would go to Habasha, like, okay, for us, it's difficult to understand, but if, if these trade journeys are very, very risky. Because what happens if, if a trade journey, especially if you've made a lot of trade, a lot of business, you're coming back, right? What could happen? Yeah, violence, loot, you could get looted. It's, it's, it's very common. And we know about the journey of Badr, how Badr, Badr started. Yeah, even the Prophet thought it's a good idea. Abu Sufyan's gone with all that wealth of the people of Mecca. It's all our money, right? What we left behind in Mecca. And they've used it to go and invest it in, in, in somewhere. Let, let's go and intercept that caravan. We'll loot it. You know, we'll, we'll take a few pounds and pennies from there. And it'll cause them a little bit of trouble. Let's shake them up a little bit. But instead of that happening, it, it turned out into the first battle uh, 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 of Badr. So because Habasha was a very safe place, 
They'd heard from their ancestors that whenever anyone went there for a trade journey, you'd come back. Number one, you'd make a lot of money. And number two, you'd come back with all of it. You wouldn't lose any of it because it wasn't dangerous. Very safe place to be. Um, and in, in Tabari, it mentions that they'd only heard good about him. It's very rare to hear like 100%, 10 out of 10, like raving reviews about something. You always, there's always some negative, some criticism. There's always something here. But regarding Habasha, they'd only heard good stuff. That's it. It was always positive. So that was another reason why Habasha was a, a chosen place uh, to go and migrate to. And number three, Najashi himself, not only was he a scholar or pious, he was actually a Christian. Now, Christians are closer to Muslims than any other faith. Any other faith, Christians are the closest to the Muslims. Um, from amongst those who practice, there's a lot of them who are quite humble as well. And you get a lot of monks and they've renounced the world. And, you know, they don't, they don't, they're, not, they're not after any worldly position. They're kind of considered godly people, faith-based. They don't have, they've got nothing to do with anything in the world, right? So the closest, and, and Quran mentions this. The Quran says, Quran says, you will find that the people who hate the Muslims the most are the Yahud and the Mushrikeen. Mushrikeen and Yahud, two, two categories are mentioned. You know, it's, I find it interesting when you come across these verses. People always speak about Muslims hating on other people, right? And it's inflated. Right? Homophobia, okay, anti-Semitism, all this kind of stuff. It's like, it's always targeted. Muslims, are, it's as if like Muslims are people who go around hating on everyone else. I think it's the other way around, right? Have you, have, you probably never heard a talk from here or any other place where we're teaching from here, literally teaching to go and hate on this group or hate on these people or hate these people. I think it's the other way around, right? You see, Quran is telling us as well that they hated the Muslims. And it's always been like that. They hate the Muslims. They hate the Muslims for what they're doing. We can see from history and tarikh as well. The whole reason why they did what they did to Isa salam and then to the Prophet They hated the Prophet salam and all the, 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 the sly kind of things that the schemes that they made behind him. And you can see very clearly that there's that level of it. Very deep-rooted hatred. And Quran tells us, Quran says that the hatred, the hatred is actually coming out of their mouths. And what they, the hatred they hide in their hearts is even more. Right? So it's the other way around and they've kind of just put it onto us. And that's why wherever we go, it's that we have to be really, really careful with what we say and what we do. And in reality, it's just a play on words and the way it's been twisted around. Like a lot of things have been twisted around. So the Quran says, You will find that the most severe in enmity towards the Muslims are the Yahud and the Mushrikim. And you will find that the people who are closest to the Muslims in, in kind of love, in mawadda, mutual love, are the people who call themselves Nasara. We are Nasara. We are Christians. We're not talking about people who don't have a religion. Those people who actually believe themselves to be Christian. And the Quran gives a reason why. Why? 
Because from amongst the Christians, a lot of them are monks. Meaning these religious people, they don't have anything to do with anything else. There's no political agenda there, right? You find in a lot of the other religions, there's a lot of political agendas there, right? Whereas these people are just worried about practicing the faith, right? Reason number two, they're not arrogant people. They don't have arrogance in them. They, 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 they are humble. And that's one of the reasons as well. So, when did this migration take place to Habasha? So the first migration took place in the fifth year of Hijrah. So the Prophet ﷺ, no, sorry, not fifth year of Hijrah, fifth year of Nubuwa. So the Prophet ﷺ has been granted prophethood. And five years later, how long have they been openly calling to Islam? So now, if, if, if it's the fifth year of Nubuwa, two years, so this is the second. Remember, first three years was secret calling, right? The first three years, Islam was secret. There was no open propagation. And then in the third year, they were instructed to openly propagate. Now, this is the second year of the open calling, right? Since the open calling started, we've seen the persecution start as well. So they've had almost one and a half years of being persecuted, beaten up, being harassed. So this is the second year of the open preaching. How many people migrated in the first migration? Anybody know? Hmm? 39? Anyone else? 30? Anyone else? How many people migrated the first migration? Nine. There weren't many. Ten men and five women. Fifteen. Small group. They had to. They had to be. Do, they had to do it very carefully. You couldn't just like. There were being people who were being watched all the time. Um, let's look at the names of who who they were. Fifteen names is not a lot, so we can go through them. Um, so from the ten men, the first people to migrate to Habasha was actually a couple. Husband and wife. And they didn't say to Allah, we're migrating. They, they just made an excuse and they just went. See, it was done secretly. Um, so the first people to migrate, it was a couple. Uthman bin Affan and his wife. Who's his wife? Ruqayya. Who's Ruqayya? The Prophet's daughter. Right? He's married to Uthman ibn Affan. So Uthman ibn Affan and Ruqayya, radiyallahu anha, um, they are the first people to leave. And the Prophet ﷺ praised him saying that you are the first person to migrate with your wife after Prophet Lut Remember Prophet Lut migrated with his wife when Ibrahim migrated as well from Iraq to Palestine. So the Prophet ﷺ praises him saying you're the first person to go and migrate with his wife. Uh, and that was his daughter who went. So Uthman ibn Affan is the first person to leave. Makkah with his wife Ruqayya, the daughter of the Prophet. How many is that? That's two, right? We're counting until 15. Ummu Ayman was also with them. Remember who Ummu Ayman is? Yeah? Ummu Ayman? Everybody knows Ummu Ayman? Ummu Ayman, again, she's from Habasha originally, from Abyssinia originally. And she was a slave girl 
of the Prophet Sallallahu's father. As you know, the Prophet Sallallahu's father passed away. And then when the Prophet Sallallahu was born, she was present. So she was the other person that was present. And she's a woman, a black woman again, from Habasha, privileged woman. We don't talk, speak about her enough. Such was the, the status of this woman and in Islam that the Prophet wasallam in his life, this is the only person who was with the Prophet wasallam from the moment he was born till the moment he passed away. Allah gave this honor to this woman of Habasha. Only woman, only person, not even any man had this privilege. She was with him, literally, literally with him. The moment she was born, he was born. She's the actually first person to hold the Prophet ﷺ, was Ummu Ayman. Who else was there? She was there as a midwife. Very young girl at the time still. And she carried him, right? And then gave him to his mother. She lived in the house. So she was looking after him. She was taking care of him. When the Prophet ﷺ grew up a little bit and with his mom at the age of six, they went towards Medina. Why? Because Abdullah, therefore his father had passed away somewhere around there, right? To visit his grave. On the return journey between Mecca and Medina by a place called Abawa, the Prophet ﷺ mother passes away and he's only six years old, right? How did who? And when she was passing away, who else was there? The woman that never separated from the Prophet Ummu Ayman. Ummu Ayman is there. And while she was dying, she said, treat him like your own son now. Right? Ummu Ayman was told by the mother of the Prophet take care of him as if he's your own son. This is why he would look at Ummu Ayman and say, she is my mother after my mother. He would actually call her, she is my mother after my mother. Very, very, very noble woman. Uh, we've done a whole talk on Ummu Ayman uh, before. You can find it in, in, in the playlist. Um, but just very briefly, that was regarding Ummu Ayman. And there's many other things. I mean, she was there. She did not disappear for a moment. From day one till day zero. And she even outlived the Prophet And then she brought him back and she raised him and she looked after him and she cared for him. And even when he got married, she said, I'm never going to get married. I'm, my job is to look after you. And the Prophet encouraged her to get married and she said no I, I, my pro, I, my priority is looking after you even when the prophet would be in battle she would go and she'd be looking out for him making sure nobody had, he, he doesn't get hurt he's looked after and she'd run after him she'd get morsels of food still put it in his mouth and try and take care of him and she was there for him throughout his entire life that was one woman right who's been privileged no one has this privilege right and this is how islam honored people of color how Islam honored women, right? And then they say, right, Islam is like this and Islam is like that. We don't appreciate our own religion because we don't read upon it. We don't learn it. We've not studied it. This is Islam. This is how beautiful Islam is. And how a woman like this, so she, she, she brings him back and then eventually, who does she get married to? She does get married. And she gets married to who? So Zaid. Who's Zaid? Right, Zaid was the beloved of the Prophet Right, he even adopted him, didn't he? Okay, as his own son. He gets married to Ummu Ayman. Right, this is an amazing thing. Zaid is mentioned in the Quran as well by name. 
right? And then they have a son. And who's that? Who's the son that Ummu Ayman and Zayd have a son? Who's, who's that son? Usama bin Zayd, right? Who's known as the beloved of the beloved of the Prophet of Allah. Because Zayd was the beloved of the Prophet of Allah. Usama is the beloved of the beloved of the Prophet And many, many stories. So their mother is, his mother is Ummu Ayman. And obviously she had somebody called Ayman before that as well. So this is this amazing woman. So she also migrates uh, with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Number four is Abu Hudayfa and his wife Sahla bint Suhail ibn Amr. So that's four and five. Number six is Zubair bin Awam. Number seven, Mus'ab bin Umair. Number eight, Abdul Rahman ibn Awf. Number nine, Abu Salama. Number 10, Ummu Salama. Number 11, Uthman bin Maz'oon. We've spoken about Uthman bin Maz'oon already. Number 12, Amir ibn Rabi'ah and his wife, who is Layla bint Abi Hathama. Number 14, Abu Sabura. And number 15, Suhail bin Bayda. These names are important. Think about it. In the early days, right, so that Islam could reach you and me in the pristine condition that it is, they left their homes. They left Makkah, they left their wealth, they left their properties, they left it. They didn't know where they were going. They were going to no man's land, right? And they went and they made this sacrifice. So how did they go? So secretly, they go. They didn't all go in one go, right? They paced it out, they, they discussed it, and then they started leaving separately. So some of them left on foot, others were riding. And they carried on going until they reached the port of Arabia. They, they got to the sea. And there's a port there called Shu'aiba at the edge of Arabia. Uh, and they reached this port. And luckily, when they got there, there were two ships about to leave, trade ships. And the people on the ships agreed to let them on board. Some went on one ship, some went on the other ship. And they charged them half a dinar each. That was the fare to ride. They've gone to the ships and they carried on going until they reached to uh, the port of uh, Musawwa, which is in Eritrea today. So that's where the Sahaba arrived in Eritrea. Yeah, everybody knows where Eritrea is. Okay, so they've got to Africa. Sahaba have got there. Today, even till today, on this port of Eritrea in a place called Musawwa, there is a masjid called Sahaba Masjid, something like that. And it's claimed, it's claimed that this is the first masjid in Islam. Remember, the Prophet hasn't gone to Medina yet. So there's no Quba, there's no Masjid Nabi yet. They're still in Makkah. They've not built anything around the Kaaba yet, right? So over here, there's a structure there, literally on the port. You come off and there's pictures of it. You can Google it. You'll see it's, 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 it's a small structure and they've put a, like a railing around it painted it blue and, and there's, there's a sign there and it's called something like uh, Masjid al-Sahaba or Sahabi Masjid something like that known to be the oldest and the first Masjid in Islam and it's claimed that these Sahaba who went there they built it Allah knows best but again there's great history there there's a first migration so this group of 15 Muslims have arrived now in early days to Eritrea but they didn't stay there so they carried on going further in and in those days, um, it was Abyssinia, Habasha, or it could even be have known as the um, 
Aksum, Aksum Empire. That's what it was, the Aksum Empire. And they actually settled in a place called Aksum, which is, so Ethiopia today, right, it's quite, it's very close to the northern border, where Ethiopia joins with Eritrea. So literally it's just crossing Eritrean border today and coming into Ethiopia, there's a place called Aksum, now as well today. And that is where the Sahaba settled. So they didn't go deep into Ethiopia. They just settled there at the top. Nowadays, we've got different names and different borders. At that time, it was all one area. Um, and this is where the Muslims arrived and they settled in a place called Aksum, northern uh, Ethiopia. Now, when the Mushrikeen found out that there are some Muslims missing, like where have they gone? So they started, they sent out a search party. They're looking for them, for them everywhere. And there were experts in following uh, footprints and tracking, right? So they're, they're looking at the footprints, the animal prints, uh, and what happened? Where does it lead to? Okay, it led to the port, right? And by the sea. And that's when they thought, like, oh, damn, like, they've gone. <laughs> We've lost them, right? They've gone into the ships and they realized that they've, they've gone. And they knew that they couldn't catch them. So that made them feel really horrible. They've come back and they thought, right, we're going to make it more difficult for the people that are here. Now, Muslims in Habasha lived very comfortably. No one ever said a word to them. Now, think about it. They weren't, you know, like we're living here in a minority, right? Even though Birmingham's got the most Muslims, as we've learned from the census now, in the whole of the country, the largest population of Muslims in the whole of the UK is in Birmingham. 300 and something thousand, isn't it? Yeah, something like 325,000 or whatever it is. Largest population of Muslims in Birmingham. So that kind of makes you feel, all right, we've got nothing to worry about. But uh, think about this, right? They've gone to a land. They'll forget, no, the Muslim, no one ever heard of Islam before. No one's heard of Islam. Forget, you know, there's no other Muslims. But despite that, so harmonious the land was. And... He'd, he'd established such justice in that land. No one ever said a word to them whilst they stayed there about anything, about Islam or anything. And this is mentioned by Imam Ahmad in his Musnad. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promises in the Quran, Whoever migrates in the cause of Allah, you will find a lot of vastness. Like the problems you are facing, uh, you know, you, you go there and then everything will be easy for you. There'll be nothing to worry about. Now, something happens. Those people have migrated, right? They've gone. And you might be thinking, how long did they stay there? Did they come back? Because we know about a second migration as well. For the second migration that will happen, the first lot must have come back. So what, what happens? So they're living there now in Habasha, Abyssinia. And Ramadan comes. During Ramadan in Mecca, we're back in Mecca now. Now in Makkatul Mukarramah, during Ramadan, the Prophet ﷺ holds a gathering. In the gathering, you've got Muslims, and then you've got loads of non-Muslims as well, Mushrikeen, right? These are leaders of the Quraysh, other Mushrikeen as well. So this massive gathering the Prophet ﷺ has had, and he's trying to... So the Prophet ﷺ, he starts reciting verses of the Quran. The people are mesmerized. And as you already know, the Quraysh, despite opposing the Quran, deep down they absolutely loved it. Right? They were in love with the Quran. But they, they, they couldn't openly say that. 
So on this occasion, the Prophet ﷺ is reciting specifically Surah Wan Najmi Ida Hawa. Wan Najmi Ida Hawa. Ma Dalla Sahibukum wa Ma Hawa. Wa Ma Yantiqanil Hawa. In Huwa Illa Wahi Nuha. And he recites this surah. And the people were so mesmerized. Muslims, jinns, and mushrikeen. All three categories. So Muslims are Muslims, but even the jinn and the mushrikeen, all of the mushrikeen that were present, they were experts in the Arabic language. They had never heard such eloquent words ever before. So meaningful, so powerful, right? So I want you to picture this. The first group of 15 people have migrated to Abyssinia. They've just gone, right? Sometime later, Ramadan comes. The Prophet ﷺ is hosting this large gathering. You've got Muslims there and you've got Mushrikeen. Who's, who's the reciter? Right? Just think about this, right? If you were in that gathering, who are you? Who's reciting the Quran? The Prophet ﷺ, the Mushrikeen are stopping him. They're allowing him on this occasion to recite, right? And they're listening. So one is the beautiful countenance of the Prophet ﷺ. Number two is his beautiful recitation. Right, and then the power of the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Every single member of that gathering, they were so mesmerized by the words of the Quran, Muslims, jinn, and mushrikeen. Remember this part. And the mushrikeen, that whilst the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam recites this, this surah, and then he comes to the end, and he says, in, in, the, in the end of the surah, wa najmi idha hawa, uh, it says, Fas judu lillahi wa'budu. So basically, leave everything that's evil. Fas judu lillahi wa'budu. Make sajda for Allah and worship only Him. And the Prophet ﷺ made the sajda. All the Muslims made the sajda. All the jinn made the sajda. All the mushrikeen made the sajda as well. Everybody. They, the mushrikeen fell into sajda. They didn't even know what they were doing. It's like something overtook them. They were so dumbfounded that they, it, it just, they just went into prostration, all of them. Prophet ﷺ, Muslims, and all of the mushrikeen. And you've got the leaders of the mushrikeen there as well. There's only one old man, one old mushrik. He didn't do the sajda, right? He didn't do the sajda, and his name is Umayyah bin Khalaf. Instead, he took a handful of soil and he put it towards his head. Because I'm not going down. This is enough for me. I'm just going to... He just did that. And later on, he was killed in Badr. But besides him, all the mushrikeen fell into sajda. Now, two things I'm going to mention to you. One is about the sajda and the other is what happened. Because Okay, let, let's, let's take the first part first. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that and then we'll come back to it. Now, because all of the mushrikeen went into sajda, a rumor started to spread. And the rumor spread that the mushrikeen have all accepted Islam. And this rumor started traveling until it actually reached the people that were in Habasha. So they got excited. And that's why a lot of them started coming back. And we'll come back to that story in a while. What I want to mention here is, that the Prophet wasallam, when he recited this surah, uh, I told you exactly why the mushrikeen went into sajda. 
Now there's a huge controversy here. And everybody's heard of satanic verses. Salman Rushdie. And everything that happens surrounding that. That's in relation to this story. And we're going to break it down now so everybody understands. You've probably heard about it in passing. Right? But what, what, what was it that happened? Why did he say that? Why has he wrote, wrote this book? Why is that book rubbish, totally baseless, no leg to stand on? And it goes against the Quran. And as Muslims, what do we believe? Right? So it's important to understand. So it's come up in our seerah. So let, 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 let's, 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 let's tackle it. So the, in Surah Wan Najmi, there is a verse that says, so one verse in this surah one najmi idha hawa one verse comes are you, are you telling me about lat and uzza and the third one which was called manat these were the three greatest idols right this is mentioned here uh, now there are narrations in some of the books of tafsir some of the books of history some of the books uh yeah and there in those books there are narrations that mention it's called the the the, the incident of gharaniq gharaniq which means that they are saying these narrations are saying um, they're saying a couple of different things but the gist of it is this Mushrikin went into sajda. I just explained to you why they went into sajda. And this is Ahlu Sunnati wal Jama'a. We believe that the Mushrikin, Muslims, Jinn, all made the sajda. Why? Because they were mesmerized by the Quran. These are some narrations which Salman Rushdie has taken and others who believe that and made these whole books satanic verses. And basically, satanic verses meaning showing as the Quran is satanic verses. And I'll explain to you why they say that. Uh, that these narrations mention that when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said أَفَرَأَيْتُمُ اللَّاتَ وَالْعُزَّةِ verse 19 after this these narrations mention shaitan came and he inserted some verses that said تِلْكَ الْغَرَانِيكُ الْعُلَى وَإِنَّ شَفَاعَتُهُنَّ لَتُرْتَجَى because Lat, Uzza, and Manat were mentioned, three great idols. These great gods, these great idols, these are the great idols. These are the great gods. And their intercession is hoped for. Now, these narrations mention that shaitan came and inserted these verses. Some even mention that na'udhu billah, na'udhu billah. I'm just saying what's mentioned. That the Prophet said these lines and the mushrikeen went into sajda saying, up until now Muhammad has been cursing the idols. Today he smashed it. Today he's praised them. Let's go for it. And they went into sajda as well. Up until now, he always said evil things about the idols. But today he said, These are the great idols and their intercession is hopeful, uh, whether it's talking about in the world or in the day of judgment. They used to intercede, don't they? They used to go to the idols instead of going to Allah. So in their context, it would mean in the world. 
Yeah, the, yeah what, basically he's validating their practice of shirk. And they thought, whoa, this is great. Let's go into sajda. This is what, this is what uh, they are trying to say based on these narrations. So let's try and understand. Now, these narrations can be found in Tabaqat ibn Sa'ad, in the book Tafsir of Tabari, in Tabarani, and also in Dalail al-Nubuwa. These are Islamic sources. However, they are not. The, the, the thing to understand about these books the authors of these books did not make it their objective to collect only authentic narrations. They've collected everything. They just took whatever they found, they've collected. Now you've probably been hearing in, in all of the previous sessions, I've been quoting from these books as well. And it's fine to do so. But we have to be careful. Where if it's authentic, it's fine. If it's not, we leave it. Because they weren't like Bukhari and Muslim. Right? They weren't like the other, like even uh, the likes of Ibn Kathir, for example, was much more particular. The likes of Imam Al-Qurtubi, uh, they would mention if they had taken something which they weren't comfortable with, or it was weak, they would mention, oh, it's weak. But a lot of them, they would, they just, their effort was to gather whatever they came across. So you will find this narration. So we're going to go into them and to understand why, despite it being mentioned in Islamic sources, why we cannot accept it, it's totally false and it cannot be relied upon, especially when it's regarding the Quran. So various narrations have been mentioned regarding this story. The scholars of Hadith have rejected all of the narrations. This story comes to us through almost 10 different narrators. Every single narration has been rejected by the scholars of Hadith, all of them. And the reason the narrators either have been described like kathab, somebody's a liar, matruk, meaning a person is discarded, we don't take his narration, uh, mursal, da'if, jiddan, all of these narrations, there is something problematic regarding the chain of narration or one or two of the narrators that are in that chain because of which we do not, we cannot take and rely upon any of these narrations. Um, number one, number two. It's sufficient to know that such behavior is not in accordance with the station of prophethood. I'm going to go through some of these narrations just to give you an idea of what kind of things are mentioned in those narrations. I'll give you a bit of a synopsis. And also, it gives you an idea that there's a lot of disturbance in the uh, narrations, meaning they're all over the place. There's 10, maybe 10 different narrations, but they all mention like different things. So they mention this particular point, but so I, I'll give you an example, you, you'll get an idea. And that kind of gives it away that there's something dodgy going on here. There's something not quite right. You know, the, 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 the information should match, right? So there's so many reasons why this cannot be relied upon. One of them is, that such behavior is against the station of prophethood. The Prophet ﷺ, he cannot add anything from himself into the Quran, right? And we're going to go into this in a moment. So, one of the narrations say that this happened whilst he was leading Salah, right? I'm talking about these narrations. So one of them say that this incident happened whilst he was leading Salah. So they, they say he was leading Salah, he read one Najmi Hawa, he made the Sajda and the Mushrikeen also made Sajda as well. Another narration says he wasn't in Salah, he was outside Salah. 
Right? Okay, that's... Another narration says that he said it by mistake. So he didn't mean to say this, because they say that, oh, he really wanted to bring the mushrikeen closer and somehow compromise, you know, to bring something about the idols. So by mistake, he ended up saying this. Another one says that the Prophet it's the sound so bizarre. He was feeling very sleepy. And because he was feeling very sleepy, uh, shaitan uh, influenced these words onto the Prophet and made him say, Another one says that the Prophet said what's in the Quran, but shaitan made the kuffar here. That's what shaitan inspired in the kuffar's ears. They heard uh, this, and that's why they went into sajda. Um, because the narration mentions that the Muslims only heard the Quranic verse, but the Mushrikeen heard the Satanic verse. Let's call it like that, right? Um, another hadith uh, narration says that the Prophet ﷺ didn't even know about it. So this whole incident happens and Jibreel comes down and Jibreel says to him, what did you just say? He said, what did I just say? You said, I didn't bring that down from Allah. Why did you say? He goes, oh, did I? I didn't realize. Oh, that's really bad. Why did I say that? I shouldn't have said that. Okay. I, I lied against Allah. What's going to happen to me? So this is what some of these narrations are mentioning. Now, can you see this extreme uh, kind of, uh, it's all over the place. One saying this, one saying that, one saying this one. So again, in the, in, in, in the world of hadith, I'm, I'm trying to really simplify a very academic and technical issue in, this, in the field of hadith and Quran tafsir, where the scholars go, go, just, they just go for it and they're, they're coming out with different debates and arguments. I'm trying to really simplify it here. Can you see how it's like just all, all, all over the place, right? So when it comes to narrations and there's so much ihtirab, it's called in Arabic, you kind of just leave it to a side. Doesn't, it doesn't sound right. Because there's, there's, there's too much mix-up here. One saying this, one saying... When there's a little bit of a mix-up, maybe sometimes you can combine the two or give preference to one over the other. But this is like all of it all over the place. And that's not the only problem we have, discrepancy. There are so many discrepancies. That's just one thing where we find that why this is totally discarded. It's batil, it's false. We will not accept it. Qadi Iyad Rahmatullah mentions in his uh, Shifa that it's been proven by Ijma, consensus of the Sahaba, of the scholars, agreement of the Ummah, that Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is free, totally free from such lowly behavior. What to add verses in the Quran? Can, as a Muslim, can we ever imagine that? It's actually kufr to do that, isn't it? Like, we would never imagine doing that ourselves where in the Quran we add a few words in, right? Even if it be for a good reason. Even if the whole England was going to accept Islam because if we added in there, you know, some letters like LGBTQ, for example, and then everyone accepts Islam, right? Even then, what, what, what worth is it? What worth is the whole world accepting? Because we would become, okay, kuffar. 
That's kufr to do that, to change the Quran. Can we imagine the Prophet So Qadi Iyad Rahmatullah says, such lowly behavior, Muslims agree that the Prophet is free from such lowly behavior. And number one, number two, he would never ever desire what, what specifically Qadi Iyad is referring to is the Prophet would never desire for a verse of the Quran to be revealed like compromising the worshipping of idols. Because to desire that is kufr. To desire, just we know that he really wanted people to accept Islam. But on what basis are the, these narrations are there and the people who push these narrations are saying that the Prophet really wanted to kind of involve them somehow. Right, and come to this kind of you know assimilation. Um, how, how can we be inclusive and get them part of it as well? The thing he had this, we, we can't even imagine because to desire a verse like that to be revealed that's kufr in itself. Um, and number one, number two, even for shaitan to influence the Prophet وسلم, or him being unaware. That's totally impossible. It's impossible because he was protected, wasn't he? The Prophet ﷺ was protected from any kind of mischief like that. If we entertain this story for one second, do you know what that means? That means we can't trust any part of the Quran. If we believe, that shaitan had influence in the revelation. Well, how could he, maybe, maybe he had influence in all of the other verses as well. How do we know? He, that door cannot be opened, number one. Number two, it's impossible. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, walaw, this, is, this is heavy. This verse is serious. Allah is making it very clear, not to you and me. He's telling the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, وَلَوْ تَقَوَّلَ عَلَيْنَا بَعْضَ الْأَقَاوِيلِ لَأَخَذْنَا مِنْهُ بِالْيَمِينِ ثُمَّ لَقَطَعْنَا مِنْهُ الْوَتِينِ Allah says, had he, meaning had Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, had Muhammad attributed some statements to us which we didn't say, we would have seized him by the right arm and then slashed his lifeline. Allah saying, like he didn't, he didn't have the guts to do that. This is what Allah says. Well, how dare he? No, he wouldn't do that. And had he done it, Allah is saying, had he ever, this is Quran saying this. So these stories, you could bring a hundred of these narrations, right? We're always going to measure them against the Quran. When we put these, this story against the Quranic verses, it doesn't, it doesn't add up. You can bring these narrations, right? First of all, they're extremely weak or fabricated. Extremely, extremely weak or fabricated or there's some problem, some discrepancy. The scholars say even if the narrations were sahih, they were authentic, even then we couldn't accept them because the Quranic verses would make them weak. Because the Quranic verses, not one, there's so many. So that's one verse, for example. Also, Quran mentions that let alone the Prophet shaitan cannot influence a normal pious person. A normal pious person, shaitan cannot influence. 
So what is to be said about the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inna ibadi laysa laka alayhim sultan illa man ittaba'aka min al-ghawin. Allah says my slaves, Allah is telling shaitan, my slaves, you will not be able to misguide them except those who end up following you. Number one. Number two. إِنَّهُ لَيْسَ لَهُ سُلْطَانٌ عَلَى الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا He meaning shaitan does not have any power over the believers. Another one. Even shaitan himself admits this. Do you know when shaitan spoke to Allah when he was getting thrown out of Jannah? He said, قَالَ فَبِعِزَّتِكَ لَأُغْوِيَنَّهُمْ أَجْمَعِينَ إِلَّا عِبَادَكَ مِنْهُمُ الْمُخْلَسِينَ Oh Allah, I swear by your grandeur and your majesty, I'm going to mislead all of them, meaning all of the children of Adam alayhi salam. إِلَّا عِبَادَكَ مِنْهُمُ الْمُخْلَسِينَ Except your pious, exclusive servants. I can't touch them. Even he admitted it. That they are untouchable. I can't do anything to them. Allah says in the Quran, regarding the Quran, إِنَّا نَحْنُ نَزَّلْنَا الذِّكْرَ وَإِنَّا لَهُ لَحَافِذٌ We've heard this verse so many times. Allah says, we reveal the book and we will protect it. Somebody could ask, well, where did Allah go when shaitan was doing his games, right? Allah's protected the Quran. There is nothing that can be added to the Quran. It can't be done. La ya'teel, regarding Quran. Quran says regarding Quran. La ya'teel batil min bayni yadayhi wa la min khalfi. No falsehood can come to this Quran. No from behind, no from in front. Tanzeelun min hakeemin hamid. This is a revelation from the Hakim and the Hamid Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there was another verse, some scholars say it was revealed regard, around that time regarding the incident. وَإِن كَادُوا لَيَفْتِنُونَكَ عَلِ الَّذِينَ أَوْحَيْنَا إِلَيْكَ That O Prophet of Allah, Allah is saying that if it was close that they could have inclined you towards what they wanted to do. لِتَفْتَرِيَ عَلَيْنَا غَيْرَ So that you end up compromising and saying things regarding the deen, regarding Allah, all the idols which we didn't reveal, they wanted you to say that. They wanted you to say that. They tried to bring you on their side. Quran is not saying they took you on their side. Quran is saying they wanted you. They tried. They tried. It was close that they would have taken you towards their side and made you say things. But did they? Quran is saying that they didn't. This, don't get this verse wrong. Quran isn't saying that they did. They, it was close that they were about to, they were trying to. They made all of the efforts to do so. And Allah says, Allah says, had, had we not kept you firm, you would have inclined towards them. But Allah says, we kept you firm. And then the verse goes very, again, Allah says, if that was the case, if you did, we would have given you punishment of this life and also the life hereafter. And you would have had, you would have had no more friends. Allah was saying, I would have protected you. But what, what, is that telling us that he did it or he didn't do it? Of course he didn't do it. That's what he's saying. So the verses of the Quran are very clear. Qadi Iyad rahmatullahi also mentions in the Shifa, like I said earlier, had the, these narrations are all weak. Had the narrations been Sahih, then they would have been declared weak by the verses of the Quran. 
how can we rely on narrations that are extremely weak, false, or fabricated? Also, let's look at Surah Wan-Najmi itself. When we start Surah Wan-Najmi, the most often quoted verse of Surah Wan-Najmi is what? What's the verse that's most often quoted? I mean, I probably say every few weeks here as well. So look at this. You know in the Quran where you've got this, these ayat which they are saying, Salman Rushdie and co, satanic verses, right? They're saying, relying on these messed up narrations which have no foundation whatsoever, which you've just learned now, totally baseless. They are fabricated. They are rejected. Go against the Quran. Go against the station of the prophethood of the Prophet ﷺ. Cannot be accepted or entertained even for a moment. They are saying this. However, Quran is saying, "Before That's in the middle. And anybody who has any knowledge of the Quran, they know to understand the context of a verse, you have to look at what comes before it and what comes after it. If you look before these verses, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Same surah. It's almost Allah knew that this is going to happen and people are going to say this. So Allah says here in this verse, before أَفَرَأَيْتُمُ اللَّاتَ وَالْعُزَّةِ Allah says, وَمَا يَنْطِقُ عَنِ الْهَوَى إِنْ هُوَ إِلَّا وَحْيٌ يُوهَى Muhammad does not speak from his whims and his desires. He doesn't make any... Whatever he says is divine revelation from Allah. So this is before أَفَرَأَيْتُمُ اللَّاتَ وَالْعُزَّةِ And afterwards, أَفَرَأَيْتُمُ اللَّاتَ وَالْعُزَّةِ وَمَنَاتَ الثَّالِثَ وَالْأُخْرَى Allah is saying immediately after the mention of Lat Uzza and Manat, Allah is saying, So another belief of the Mushrikeen was they used to believe that the angels are Allah's daughters. Now you know the Mushrikeen, pagan Arabs, what did they do with their daughters, many of them? They buried them alive because they didn't want the idea of a girl. They used to become, they used to frown Quran says when they, when they were told, They'd get depressed. And Quran says they start frowning and making faces and then dig a hole and throw the girl into the ground. So this is, so Allah is saying that, You want boys and you're giving girls to Allah, meaning you're saying the angels are Allah's daughters. Tilka idhan qismatun diza. Allah says, this is a very idiotic distribution. What kind, of, what kind of senseless thing is this to do? You want boys and you're giving girls to Allah, right? And then in here, إِلَّا أَسْمَاءٌ سَمَّيْتُمُوهَا أَنْتُمْ وَلَا آبَاؤُكُمْ مَا أَنزَلَ اللَّهُ بِهَا مِنْ سُلْطَانِ إِنْ يَتَّبِعُونَ إِلَّا الظَّنِّ وَمَا تَهْوَ الْأَنفُسِ Allah says that these things that you're doing, these are just names you've made up yourself. Allah has not revealed any proof regarding this. These idols and these angels and all this stuff that you're saying, ma anzal Allahu biha min sultan. Allah says you're just following your desires. Allah has not revealed any evidence or any proof for this. Can you see what? So in the middle you've got that verse. Before it you've got wa ma yantiqwanil hawa, and after it immediately Allah is Allah isn't praising them. Allah is saying that you have no evidence. You have no proof. You've just made all of this up yourself regarding the idols, regarding the angels. So how can then somebody use these narrations to say 
that the Prophet وسلم, either himself said or then shaitan made the kuffar hear that. So we reject this totally. As Muslims of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, we believe the Prophet وسلم, in the month of Ramadan recites Surah Al Najmi Ida Hawa. Muslims, jinn, mushrikeen hear the entire surah as it is in the Quran today. And the reason they prostrated is because they were mesmerized by the words of the Quran and they had no choice but to fall into sajda. And this is why, why I'm mentioning this now, is this is why the rumor spread that the mushrikeen have accepted Islam. If they had done sajda because of the mention of the idols, why would the rumor spread? They'd be very clear that we, everyone else would have heard it as well. They would say, oh, they did, their sajda was because of the idols. But no, they did sajda because of the Quran. Quran, the way it is today. So, now I hope that kind of clarifies. So the book that Salman Rushdie has written, Satanic Verses, okay? It is Satanic Verses. That's what it is. His book is Satanic Verses. He's a shaitan, okay? He's written verses. So it's called Satanic Verses. Quran is protected. Quran is guided. He's calling Quran satanic verses. That's what he's doing. Okay. And if, remember, if you, if you say satanic verses crept into the Quran, then the whole Quran will lose. How, how can you trust any of it? So his book, yes, that's what it is. Okay. So Imam, so the, it doesn't make sense in the, okay, another thing. In the Quran, it's a very beautiful flow, right? Anybody who's familiar with the Quran will see the flow of the Quran. Now, when you're looking at the verses, okay, uh, if you're going like this, okay, it carries on this flow. If you go to go, it, 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 it doesn't go with it. It doesn't, this, the, the flow gets cut off because it sounds like what's going on. All of a sudden, how come there's a line there praising the idols where the idols are being cursed over here? It, it doesn't make sense. The story stops and starts. There's no, it is, there's no flow. Imam Bayhiqi rahmatullahi hadith scholar is saying this story is not proven. Imam Razi, a great scholar of the Quran is saying this story is fabricated, there is no proof. Great hadith scholar Imam Ibn Hazm al-Zahiri rahmatullahi says this story is a pure lie. Qadi Iyad rahmatullahi al-Maliki in his shifa says none of the scholars particular about authentication have mentioned this narration. The narration has been mentioned in Islamic sources but none of the scholars who are particular about authenticating, authenticating narrations in their books have mentioned this particular story. None of the trustworthy narrators have narrated it. That's another thing. There are many narrators that are considered trustworthy. None of the trustworthy narrators have narrated it. Only by those who are known to collect all type of narrations have narrated this. Imam Ibn Kathir has mentioned that the narrations are not sahih, they are all mursal. This is a terminology in the hadith terminology. I don't have time to explain that right now. And Imam Al-Qurtubi says that he has rejected all of the All of the narrations are rejected. We cannot accept any of them. Now, let's get back to our story regarding the migration. Because the mushrikeen made the sajda, the news spread that the mushrikeen of Makkah have become Muslims. 
They've accepted Islam. Now this news reached Habasha. When they heard, they got excited. Why not? Of course we want to go back to Makkah. We want to be by the Kaaba. We want to be by the Prophet So they started to return home. Some people stayed in Habasha. Some started coming back. In Shawwal the same year. So this story happens in Ramadan. Next month, Shawwal. Okay. The half of the Muslims start coming back. Now, when they reach less than a day, a day's distance from Makkah. So they're coming back now. They're on their way. And when they are less than a day away, they found out that it was a lie. That wasn't true. Rather, the persecution of the Muslims in Makkah is much worse than it was when we were there before, before migrating. It's become much, much worse. So then there was no opportunity to enter into Makkah. Just like that. You couldn't go in. Yeah, you might have been able to sneak in, but very unlikely. You'd be killed. You'd be beaten to death or something. So if you, if you manage to sneak in, very good. But so many people can't, not everybody can sneak in. The only other way you could enter into Makkah was under the protection of one of the Mushrikeen leaders. It's the only way it was going to happen. Therefore, Ibn Hisham and Tabaqat Ibn Sa'd, both of them mentioned that Muslims entered into Makkah under the protection of one of the Mushrik leaders. That was the only way to get in. You couldn't get in otherwise. And, and, and they used this option that was there. Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu, when he got to Makkah, he had to get in. The daughter of the Prophet was with him as well. He wants to go and be with the Prophet How do you go in now to Makkah? If you go in now, people are going to beat you up. Where did you go? You try to run away. We're going to beat you up. We're going to tie you up now. If you go under the protection of a mushrik, nobody can touch you because you're under the protection. So they went to a person called Abu Ihiha. Abu Ihiha. And he got his slave to make an announcement that um, Uthman and his wife are under my protection. Nobody touch him. And therefore, he would go leave his house. He would go to visit the Prophet every day. They knew where he was going. Nobody touched him because he was under the protection of Abu Ihiha. Mus'ab bin Umar radiallahu anhu entered into Makkatul Mukarramah in the refuge of Nadar bin Harith. These are all great mushrikeen. We've spoken about them, how they used to harass the Muslims. But somebody came to them and said, I want your protection. They gave the protection. Mus'ab bin Umar comes into Makkah. Zubair ibn Awam, he came into Makkah under the refuge and protection of Zama'a uh, yes, Zama bin Aswad. And Abdurrahman ibn Awf, he came in the refuge of Aswad bin Yahuth. Uthman bin Mad'un, we already spoke about, do you remember? Uthman bin Mad'un, he came under the protection of... Who is it? Who was one of the greatest chiefs? The wise old man. They used to go to him for fixing problems and everything. Walid bin Mughira, that's the one well remembered, mashallah. So, Uthman bin Mad'un, he went under the protection. I remember last week we spoke about how he was under the protection and the Muslims were being persecuted and he was like safe. And then he thought, I don't want this protection of a mushrik. And he went back to Walid bin Mughira, I don't want your protection. He says, okay, I'm going to announce it, tell everybody. Um, so, he was under the protection of Walid bin Mughira. And Amir ibn Rabi'ah, he came under the protection and refuge of As bin Wa'il. And Abu Salama came under the refuge of Abu Talib. Because Abu Salama is a nephew of Abu Talib as well. 
Just like the Prophet ﷺ is a nephew, this Abu Salama was also a nephew of the Prophet of Abu Talib. So he came to Abu Talib, Abu Talib said, yes, I will give you my protection. Now when Abu Salama sought protection from Abu Talib, the Quraysh came. He said, what are you playing at? He asked for my protection, I'm giving him. Because you're already protecting one nephew. He goes, why, you, why are you, who are you protecting him from? You're protecting him from us, that's not good. Like, he goes, no, it's not right. If I'm protecting one nephew, I'm going to protect another one. Um, what's very interesting is that people weren't listening to Abu Talib. So someone spoke up on this occasion unexpectedly. And that was Abu Lahab. So Abu Lahab stood up for his brother on this occasion. And he told the people to quieten down and said, get lost. He's given protection. That's it. That's, that's the end of it. You know how it was with tribal kind of things that they would follow tribal rules and whatnot, um, custom. So Abu Lahab stands up on this account. And some people started getting a bit of hope that maybe Abu Lahab might consider Islam, but that didn't happen. Um, and when Abu Lahab spoke, the people kind of backed off and said, okay, you know, Abu Talib is given protection. He's given it to already to Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. If he's giving it to Abu Salama, then we won't touch him as well. And this is how the Muslims returned, some of the Muslims returned back into Mecca. Some of them remained in Habasha. And um, now when they come back, the situation is much worse. So the persecution continues and it just gets worse and worse until they decide that we need to leave again. And that's when the second migration to Abyssinia takes place, which inshallah will cover in the next session. Um, so which we will, next week being the holidays, we'll give a week off inshallah. Uh, you guys can relax and have a break for one week. And the following week inshallah will continue. Insha'Allah, with the second migration to Habasha, many more people went. A lot of other things happened whilst they were over there in Habasha. That, Insha'Allah, we'll speak about in not next week, the week after, Insha'Allah. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayhi.